I don't know if Zane and Anna know this yet, but uh, there's no such thing as a perfect relationship. Um, we, we want that in our marriages and families and friendships, um, where there is no fear of betrayal, where there is no reprisal for hurt, where all decisions made are perpetually based on what is best for the relationship, um, and where there is uninterrupted prioritizing of the other person. Uh, wouldn't that be a great relationship to be a part of? Uh, I think we all want to be that kind of a person in the relationships we're in. We, we I think, want those who are in relationship with us to, to be those kinds of people. We want our relationships to be like that. But unfortunately, um, we don't experience that simply because of our nature, right? We have a, a fallen sin nature that's tainted um, by our sin, and it affects how we relate to one another. So we can't have that relationship I just uh, defined or I just laid out for you. It's, it's a, a wonderful prospect, but the reality of happy, having that experience while in these bodies of sin is impossible. Not just remote, but impossible. Just imagine if, if we could all be like Jesus. You know, wouldn't that be a wonderful experience? Well, that's one thing we have to look forward to, isn't it? Because we are told that, that when we see him, we will be like him. And so one great day, uh, we'll wake up and not have issues with each other. And what a wonderful thing that will be. Um, in our passage today, we're going to discover that perfect love actually does exist, if we want to define what I've just said as perfect love, and that, that we are invited to participate or share in it. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open with me to Psalm 119, and we're going to look at verse 41 today. Psalm 119, verse 41. Well, the psalmist, and this is the, the uh, wa stanza, verse 41 begins, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Now here we read of steadfast love and its effect on our experience. The, the Hebrew term that the word steadfast love reflect is hesed. That's a transliteration of the Hebrew word, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And it is a common word in the Old Testament, but a word that's chosen by the author to describe God's perfect love for us. If he's going to, if he's going to help you and I understand what it means to, to see God's love, he's going to use this word, hesed. And this Hebrew word, hesed, has no English equivalent. And so what is hesed love? Hesed love is a very broad term in the Old Testament. It's a word used um, because the authors who used the term had a hard time defining the expansive love of God. It's an all-inclusive love. It, uh, it includes things like mercy, forgiveness, hope, kindness, faithfulness, provision, salvation, transformation, promise. These kind of things are all included in this one term, hesed. Um, it's all wrapped into one word. We don't have that kind of a word in English. But they did in Hebrew. And so today, I want you to better understand and embrace this hesed love of God, this, this perfect love of God for you, no matter what your background, no matter what baggage you happen to be carrying today, I want you to at least hear of God's great love and have confidence in relating to him. And I want to suggest to you that if that happens it will have a dramatic effect on your human relationships, your horizontal relationships. So if you can understand God's love for you, that's a vertical relationship, you and God, it has a dramatic effect on your horizontal relationships, you and those people sitting around you. So let's look at this verse more closely. I have a few points that I wanna make that are in your uh, bulletin in the outline. 
And the first is this, the source of Hesed love. The source of Hesed love. And of course, the source of a perfect love must come from a perfect being, right? Um, there's no other way that, that this can come about. And of course, God is that one, that perfect being. The psalmist is crying out to the only one who can actually love like that. He says in this verse, O Lord, O Lord, reaching out to that perfect one. This kind of love only has one perfect source, and it is God, the perfect one. Now, uh, a, a verse in the New Testament that may help you kind of understand this, this expansive love of God, even though it's not directly related to his love, is a verse that describes God's person in Romans chapter 11. Paul says this, For from him, speaking of God, from him, through him, and to him are all things. So all things like mercy, hope, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, provision, transformation are all from God, through God, and actually ultimately reflect back on God. It, it is a, a description of this multidimensional, multifaceted, perfect love of God. Hesed love. What is the effect of this kind of love? Point two. The effect of Hesed love, of course, is salvation. If you look at the verse, look at the verse with me. Let your steadfast love come to me, and then he inserts a synonym, your salvation, according to your promise. So the effect of Hesed love is our salvation. Now, to understand salvation, we need to think of it in temporal terms and eternal terms. Uh, temporal salvation, to describe what it means, what it looks like, has to do with time and space. All right, so... Um, as we walk through this life, as we experience life in the, our existence, God comes through for us in time and space, and that, or when he intervenes, that is temporal salvation. Even though we're God's children by way of being born of God, as the Apostle John would call it, we still get ourselves into trouble, don't we? Whether it's because of ignorance, foolishness, weakness, outright rebellion against God, whatever the, the, the reason, we get ourselves in trouble occasionally. And when we, when we get into trouble, what do we do? What's our first response? We usually, if we're Christians, we cry out to God. Even if we're not, many times that's the natural response. Oh, God, save me. Um, the, the Psalms are full of these kinds of prayers, aren't they? There are many stories in Scripture where this kind of prayer is heard. You remember Exodus chapter 14? The people of Israel found themselves in deep trouble. Um, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt, but Pharaoh had a change of mind and decided to go retrieve his slaves, if not kill them. And he caught up to them at the Red Sea, and so they were between the Red Sea and the world's most powerful army. And what was their response? They cried out in prayer, God save us. They were asking for temporal salvation. They wanted their lives spared. This is, this is what Moses said to them after they cried out. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So before the, the answer came, Moses knew because of the Hesed love of God, something important was going to happen. He said, just watch. God's going to come through. So we know how the story ended. God saved them in a miraculous way. He delivered them from the Egyptians. That was an example of temporal salvation. That miraculous act of dividing the Red Sea so they could walk across didn't save their souls, but it did save their lives, physical lives. God worked in time and space to save them. So in what ways does God save you and I temporally or in time and space? I want to suggest two ways. There are many more, but I want to just talk about two. First is this, deliverance from the effects and power of sin. Keep your, your finger in Psalm 119 and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Right after the book of Acts is the book of Romans chapter 6. Paul is describing sin and how we deal with it. 
uh, as Christians. And in, in chapter 6, I'm going to just read for you a few verses and make a couple comments. Keep in mind, this is God saving us temporally from the power and effects of sin. Paul says in verse 1, chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, the, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self, verse 6, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jump down to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but grace. And so there we see Paul's philosophy of sin, how it is that it's been dealt with by God. We're no longer slaves to sin, we are slaves to righteousness. We're no longer slaves to the enemy. We're slaves to Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul explains how this struggle takes place in his own life. How God has freed him from being enslaved to sin. How God has freed him from the power of sin in his own life. And he says, he gives us the answer in the very last verse of, of chapter 7. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, he says. There's the answer, there's the power, there's the escape from sin and the effects of it in our daily lives. And then he says this amazing verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, which we read earlier. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, using Israel's experience in crossing of the Red Sea, I want to explain to you how this happens in the Christian life. Uh, Paul, Paul uses this historical uh, experience of the Israelites in coming across the Red Sea to explain how we're no longer enslaved to sin. He says that the people of Israel were baptized into Christ through the Red Sea, kind of like in the waters of baptism. All right? In the same way that you come into Christ, uh, at least visually, is through the waters of baptism. You, you die to yourself, you're buried with him in the, in the waters of baptism, and then you are raised to newness of life. The same thing happened with the people of Israel. They were baptized into the Red Sea and they came out to walk in newness of life. They were no longer slaves to Egypt, slaves to, to Pharaoh, which are pictures of Sin and the enemy Satan, Egypt's sin, Pharaoh, Satan. They were baptized with Moses through the waters. Moses is a picture of Christ. And so um, we, we have been saved from sin. We're actually set free. We're, we're, we can go on acting like slaves to sin, but we're actually free from it. Just like the Israelites were actually free from physical slavery, even though they continued in the wilderness to act like they were slaves. So we've been given this deliverance from the effects and power of sin, whether or not we access it and live by it. So getting our identity from mundane things like money, status, fitness, whatever it is that's mundane in your life, versus Christ is an example of how we can either uh, have power over sin or live as though we're slaves to it. Um, extending grace to one another versus extracting justice, getting judgment on a person, is an example of either, either living free from sin, extending grace, or living under the power of it, exacting judgment or justice. So we've actually been delivered from sin. 
And this is a temporal salvation that we experience as Christians. We're also delivered from hardship. To give you another example of how we're delivered or saved temporally. And to do this, I want to show you how God delivered or saved the Apostle Paul from hardship. He's, and I'm going to take you to 2 Corinthians to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, first part of verse 8 says this. Paul speaking, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Hardship. Now I want to jump down to chapter 11, verse 24 and 27 to read for you the hardship that Paul experienced. He wanted the Corinthians to be aware of his suffering, and so he shares with him what it is in the 11th chapter. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. So five times he was beaten with 39 lashes, which, according to history, left the victim almost dead. So that happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Okay, so it seems that five plus three is eight plus one is nine. Nine times, at least here, he was almost beaten to death. All right? He says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger, 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 danger. Without food, cold, exposure, etc. Now, go back to chapter 1 how he started the, the letter, the epistle. Picking up with verse 8 again. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, no kidding, uh, that we despaired of life itself. I think I would too. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now listen, this is where it gets important for you to understand how God delivers us. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril. <laughs> and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, Paul had to endure ridiculously difficult circumstances. But he says, I just read to you, he thought he was delivered from them. Is he insane? You weren't delivered from them. You were almost beaten to death nine times. You just, you just shared with us the horrible experiences. You weren't delivered, Paul. What are you talking about? Well, was Paul not dealing with reality? Or is the Christian's reality different than the rest of the world? I want to suggest to you that our, rea our reality, those of us who are in Christ, is profoundly different than the rest of the world's reality. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, tells us why it's different. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, including beatings almost to death. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those, listen, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what is in mind, what Paul's ultimate good is, is becoming like Jesus. That's what's good. That's why Paul could say he was delivered. What this means is, is fundamental for your understanding of the Christian life. This means that God will deliver us from things that interrupt the process of becoming like Jesus. That's what he'll deliver you from. Things that get in the way of God's end for us. So listen, this means that God may even deliver us from comfort. I don't want that deliverance, right? He may deliver us from our jobs, from our relationships, 
And what do I mean? I mean that if you're a child of God, his goal for you is Christ-likeness, not ease, not wealth, not endless friendships and comfortable vacations. His end for you is Christ-likeness. And I know you hear a lot of that from this pulpit, but it is critical to understand. It's critical to keep you uh, from walking away from Christ when things get tough. His goal for you is to become like Jesus. So the very things that may be causing you spiritual trouble is the comfort you may be getting from having a lot of money or a lot of friends or or a healthy family. As the great theologian P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey's Circus, he's not really a great theologian, but how else do you want to introduce him? He said this thing that I think is really important. Comfort is the enemy of progress. He was thinking economically, I want you to hear it spiritually. Comfort is the enemy of spiritual progress. You can't tell me once in your life when you were in a comfortable place that you grew extraordinarily. But you can tell me a lot of times when things were tough and you grew, can't you? Yeah. Those aren't coincidences. God is going to develop Christ-likeness in us one way or another. He may have to deliver us from things that you'd rather not be delivered from. It doesn't mean that God will never deliver you from hardship or difficulty. This does not mean that you shouldn't seek advancement in your employment. This does not mean that you should be content with dysfunctional relationships. These things are obvious. I don't need to correct those. What this does mean is that God will deliver you. His steadfast love, his hesed love, will deliver us from anything that gets in the way of Christ-likeness. We've seen God do all sorts of miraculous things to deliver us temporally in this church, people recovering from serious illness, God providing employment when things were pretty bleak, God restoring marriages, We've seen God bring back wayward children. We've seen all this. And so I'm not saying God doesn't do those things. I'm just saying he doesn't do them for your comfort. His goal for you is to become like Jesus. We need to understand that he always chooses things to deliver us from and things to deliver us through to accomplish his goal of Christ-likeness. And he does so because he's perfectly wise and he is God of Hesed love, perfect love. He loves us with an eternal, wise, steadfast love. This is called Hesed love. He saves us from all sorts of dangers, all forms, including dangers to the advancement of Christ-likeness. Even dangers that are brought on by our own stupidity, he delivers us from. I remember many instances where I rescued my children from harm that they brought on themselves. But because of my love for them, I saved them. And there were times that I intentionally didn't save them physically from something that was uncomfortable so that they would learn. And that's not an easy place to be as a parent, as you know. Okay, turn back to Psalm 3, not Psalm 119, but Psalm 3. I'm kind of jumping around here, I know, but I want you to get the idea of verse 41 in Psalm 119. We remember this psalm. The psalm was penned by David when he was running from his own son Absalom. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him. And so we have this plea from David, this request for salvation, temporal salvation from his own son. Um, And it turns out that God rescued David from this peril. But that peril that he was describing here in Psalm 3 was a result of his sin with Bathsheba. 
and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David's experience in Psalm 3 was actually judgment from God's hand, and yet God saved him from his own judgment. When we get to the end, verse 8, Psalm 3, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. He had been saved. So now we can turn back to Psalm 119, verse 41. Look at the, word, the words, steadfast love. If you have a King James Version, it says mercies. Um, but the, my, what I want to suggest to you, or say to you, not suggest, but say to you, is that this word in the Hebrew is plural. It's not singular. Hesed is plural. Um, and that's important. It's not steadfast love. It could be, if we're going to translate it accurately, in a way, we would say steadfast loves. But that doesn't sound right in English. So we leave it singular. But it's actually plural. And, and let, me, let me tell you why this is important. The plurality of hesed helps us understand the numerous ways that God extends his love towards us. There's many ways that God's steadfast love intersects with our lives. When God was trying to communicate his nature with Moses, he said this in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's that word again, hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. This was the first time in scripture that God described himself in such terms. And it became one of the favorite descriptions of all biblical authors. They kept going back to it. This was really a good description. I like this description about God. I'm going to use it here, said the author of Psalm 103, which was David. Joel 2, Jonah 4, verse 2, Hebrews 2, 17, Hebrews 8, 12, 1 John 4, 16, and on and on. We have all these, these replications of this definition of God throughout Scripture because it's a good one. And it was God describing himself to his people. God's description of himself in Exodus 34, 6 is very encouraging and useful because there he said that he's merciful. We like mercy, don't we? Especially when we deserve the opposite. Merciful means this, that he looks positively on those who are hurting. God greatly enjoys showing mercy to people who need it. And you only need mercy if the other is deserved. Right? See, justice is about what is deserved, but mercy is about what is needed. God's description, self-description also says that he's gracious. He, he meets all of our needs in abundant ways. This means that he does it freely, even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's, it's getting something you don't deserve. He blesses us abundantly for no reason other than this, that he enjoys being gracious. I put up a, one of those sock bird feeders for, that feed finch, you know those things? I put one of those things in my backyard because I thought, hey, we need more birds around here and I like to see birds. And for about three weeks, nothing. Other things don't work. You know, maybe I got the wrong kind or something for the birds around here. But I was working out in the basement, the, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and I looked out the window, and there was a finch on the bird feeder. And you know what happened to me? This. I was like, wow, it works. That's awesome. Birds are coming. They're here, and now they're fighting over this thing. It gave me joy to see them using the feeder I provided. They didn't deserve the food. They've done nothing for me. I just enjoy seeing them feed and being in my yard. And that's what God's love is for us. He enjoys being gracious to you and me. He enjoys it when you're being fed, when your needs are being met. This is God's self-description. This isn't something that Moses made up. 
This is the way God describes himself towards us, towards you. In that same description, he said he's patient. And I think we could, we could argue about what's the most important character trait, and I think a lot of us would vote for this one. God is patient with me. I'm so thankful for that. To have a patient judge is an incredible thing. You know, the reason that God is patient is because he's not overcome by our sins. Nothing surprises him. He knows we're but dust. He knows we have weaknesses. He knows we have tendencies towards sin. Nothing surprises him, so he can be patient. God's quick to forgive. He's quick to extend mercy and grace and slow to anger. We're just the opposite, aren't we? We're quick to anger and have difficulty being patient. We're overcome by other people's sins and failures because it gets in our way. It bothers us. And so even though we're weak in similar ways, we lash out at people. Not the patient God that loves us. He said he's abounding in steadfast love. That's, that's what verse 41 is about. His goodness is pervasive and full and free. It says in Psalm 23 that his mercy follows us to the end of our days. It's, it's always available. It's a plural word that shows us the many different ways that God's love intersects our lives. It's plurality also helps us understand the frequency of his steadfast love. Not just the many different ways that we need it, but the frequency in which we encounter it. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 remind us of this. The steadfast love, there it is again, the hesed love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new, how often? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. <laughs> God renews his hesed love, his steadfast love, every morning. How often does he pardon your sin? Every time you sin. That's often, in my experience. This is... How often mercy happens? How often hesed love happens? How often do I draw near to the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need? Often. God's hesed love is frequent in my life and yours if you'll just look for it. Aren't you thankful that God's love um, is a fountain that never runs dry? Never. We, we can't ever get God to the place of frustration over our failure. He's never frustrated with us. He's never ever talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit and saying, man, that John, what's the matter with that guy? Nothing from my evil heart surprises him. And so he extends hesed love towards me. And thirdly, the, the plurality of the word hesed helps me understand that God's love affects a variety of my needs. And I, I've kind of already mentioned this, but we have all sorts of needs. You know, we all have a kind of a commonality of, of concerns and needs in the, in the life that we live. But each of us have needs that have a different flavor than the person sitting next to us. And God meets those needs specifically. It's not, you know, one size fits all. God's hesed love comes particularly to you in your circumstances for your purposes with the flavor of your need. He says this in Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We all have sorrows, both wicked and upright, but God, his steadfast love, his hesed love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord every different particular need that you may have, God's love is there before you get there. Wherever trouble finds you, no matter what kind it is, God's steadfast love is there. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of his maw. Our, our, 
One of the reasons that God's steadfast love needs to be so varied is because our needs are so varied. Your needs are a little bit different than mine. And Romans 5, verse 20, speaks again of this same kind of love. He says, where sin increased grace all the more. You think, oh man, I've sinned so much worse than so and so. It doesn't matter. Grace increases the more. So let's look at this a little more closely. The reason that the author here of verse 31 is saying what he's saying is because this is exactly what you and I need to hear. Oh Lord, let your steadfast love come to me. Let's look at the guarantee of this. How do we know this is going to happen? How do you know that the things that I've said about God's love for you are true and that he'll actually fulfill them in your experience? Well, this is, this is really important. The author here feels confident in this request because of what reason? Look, look at the verse. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. I don't know about you, and I don't know what your thought of God is, but when I hear that God makes a promise, I, I'm siding with the author here and, and confident that he'll, he'll pull it. He'll pull it off. That he'll do it. Why? Because he's God. And there's no falseness in him. There's no deception in God. There's no trickery. He's true to his word. This is what Jesus said about Scripture. Scripture can't be broken, John 10, 35. If God promises, it will come to pass. Why? Because he's God. God can't lie. God can't deceive. God can't fulfill a promise. And it might be the fact that we just have forgotten his promises that makes our heart dull or hard towards him. But to the point, God promises his love to us throughout Scripture, not just temporally, but eternally. The Apostle John even said that God himself is love. What is God? He's love. And he, can't, he cannot act outside of his character. So he cannot act unloving. Anything that happens to you is an act of his love. Anything. He never changes. God and his word are the guarantee of his Hesed love. The references which pepper all of Scripture of the love of God towards us are overwhelming. If you like word studies, punch in the word love and then read for two years. It's all over Scripture. Let me give you one of my favorites, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In love he does, in hesed love. He has predestined us to be in Christ. This is not just temporal. This is not just the here and now, space and time. It's eternal. God never changes. His, his love for, for David, his love for Samuel, his love for Ezekiel, his love for the apostles, his love for his own son, Jesus Christ, is the same love he has for you, a Hesed love that lasts through eternity. It's the kind of love that, that we, we read of in Hebrews 5.9, and being made perfect, that is Jesus being made perfect through suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. First, first Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Not until you misbehave, but Always. Whether or not you feel this temporal love, hesed love of God, whether or not you think this hesed love is eternal or not, is another matter. That's a different conversation. It is promised in his word that God is this way towards us. 
And I think this is where the rubber meets the road today in this sermon, in your life. Our problem is not that we associate, well, let me just say again. Our problem is this, that we associate our circumstances with God's love. We all do this. If our circumstances are difficult, then we tend to think God isn't loving. But if our circumstances are comfortable, then we tend to think that his love could be a possibility. Maybe he does love me. Things are going pretty well. But when things get dark, eh, I don't think God loves me. God's not love. I, I generally hear the statement that God is good all the time when something pleasant occurs. I rarely hear that statement from darkness. We think our experience is the final word. I want to encourage you to think that God's word is the final word. An important point of the word of God, of revelation, is that he is as he is described in spite, despite your experience, despite your circumstances. The Bible's description of God, God's description of God is the truth. Our experience is simply our experience. Psalm 89, 32, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Even in that, even when I'm punishing my people, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. This is actually true when, when and he says it hurts me more than it hurts you. See, although God can and does rescue and save us temporally, there is no guarantee of relief from discomfort. But there is a monumental guarantee of eternal comfort and joy. What we learn from the verses that I've read to you this morning, including verse 41 of Psalm 119, is that even though God may discipline us or allow discomfort to continue for a season, his steadfast love will never end for you. He's for you and me. He's for you. He will always love, always save, always do what is right, always do what is best, even if we don't feel it. If you want further confirmation of this, I would recommend to you Romans 8, 31 through 39, where the apostle Paul gives a comprehensive statement on God's love not being able to be separated from his people. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. But there's these wonderful guarantees of eternal comfort and joy all over Scripture. Let me read for you three. And this is the promise that he made to us. This is the promise that God made to us. Eternal life. Life. John 3, 14 through 16. We heard it earlier, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of God must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God so loved the world. It, didn't, it doesn't say God loved the world so much. He said this is how God loved the world. He gave his own son. That if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll live eternally with him. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. These are the guarantees of God's Hesed love for us. And let's close with this, the prayer for Hesed love. Point four. This verse is the prayer. This verse is the prayer for Hesed love, that God would extend this love to me. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Make it happen for me. I want this to be your prayer. This morning, I want you to understand something, and this is, again, confirmed throughout Scripture. God's salvation, God's hesed love is reserved for those who ask. That seems so primary, elementary. It doesn't seem like it's worth saying. But think about God's extending his love to people throughout Scripture. Who receives it? Those who ask receive it. 
like this guy, Psalm 119, verse 41. So asking is a good idea. We're, we're commanded to ask for God's Hesed love. His Hesed love, to, and why? Why are, we, why are we commanded to ask God for his Hesed love? Because this is natural to him. It's his nature to be loving. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen how Paul defines God. The Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. That's how God is defined by Paul, the guy who went through all these hardships. The God of all comfort, the God of all mercies, the God of hesed love. That's his nature. And I know some of you in this room, and I know you don't believe it right now because of your experience. Please believe it. God's mercy and comfort shine as naturally as the sun gives light. It overflows its banks like a flooding river. It's natural to him. Secondly, his hesed love is pleasing to him. And God doesn't have to work overtime to, to love you. You're so hard to love. No, it pleases him. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Look what God does for his people. He pardons iniquity. He passes over their sin. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights instead. He delights in chesed love. He loves it. It's pleasing to him. What, what's interesting to me is in the study this past week, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, you read that God's judgment is strange to him. But judgment and, and God are quick in our minds, aren't they? They, they come together really quickly. God, judge. God, look out. You know, hope that he's not mad. No. Isaiah 28, 21 says that God's judgment is strange to him. It's, it's an alien emotion to him. That's not his, his first move. It's his last towards us. And then finally, his chesed love is abundant. When he communicates himself to us in the form of chesed love, it's it's just gushing, like that fountain that can't be stopped. The, the story and plan of salvation reveals this in the clearest possible terms, doesn't it? John 3.16 is how God loves us. By coming himself from heaven to earth to live a life like ours and die a death for us. And so I want to encourage you to come to this gracious, hesed filled God like the tax, tax collector did in Luke 18. He said this, Luke said this in, in Luke 18, 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just ask. As a sinner, ask, not as a person who's gotten their act together, as a sinner. Simply ask. This is how we must regularly come to him. Whether we need temporal or eternal salvation, this is, this is what God wants. He wants us to ask. And then he will dump Hesed love on us. Asking, of course, is simply an acknowledgement of need. The reason most people don't ask is because they're prideful. <laughs> I don't need God. Yeah, you do. You just don't know it. Asking requires humility. It requires dependence. The humble and contrite heart in Psalm 51 is the stuff of asking. Asking is different than demanding. Naming and claiming is not asking. But Jesus said to ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask. 
to remind you how this works. The woman came up behind Jesus and simply touched his robe and received Hesed love. The blind man called out from the side of the road to the son of David and asked for mercy. The distraught father asked for more faith. I believe, but help my own belief. The thief on the cross asked simply to be remembered. The prison warden in Philippi called on the name of Jesus. And what happened to all these folks? They were saved. They experienced the abundant washing of the Hesed love. So calling on Jesus, asking for mercy, this is a critical step in receiving the Hesed love that God freely offers to anyone who will simply humbly ask. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Have you asked? Let's pray. God, you know our hearts, you know our needs, and so we might justify our, our lack of asking by saying that you know what we need, so why ask? But we're here to, to obey, to follow your word, which tells us to ask and we'll receive, seek and we'll knock. That's what we're here now, Father. These words are fresh in our minds and, and have penetrated our hearts, and so we ask you, the God of Hesed love, to extend it to us, to extend it to me. God, make this true in my life. Pour out your Hesed love in the lives of every person in this room, I pray, for the glory of our Hesed Savior, Jesus Christ, and his needy people who sit here today. Amen.